Welcome to Engaging ESG, the new podcast that considers what it takes to get ESG comms right and how it can go oh so wrong. From fears of greenwashing and systemic bias to the backlash against woke investing, the risk of getting ESG wrong can be high, but so can ignoring the concerns of employees, consumers, and our planet. I'm Jennifer Owens, former external content strategy lead for Meta Sustainability. And I'm Katie Callens, former head of sustainability engagement at Meta. In this 10-part series, we'll delve into the complexities of ESG communications by tackling your toughest inquiries. We'll explore the pitfalls and opportunities and share practical answers you and your team can use today as you navigate the evolving landscape of environmental, social, and governance topics. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Engaging ESG. Today, we are diving into some of ESG's most feared buzzwords, because yes, you can share too much of a bad thing or too much of a good thing. And we're here to break it all down with some great stories, some great examples, and we're here to help you and your team avoid stumbling, falling, and scraping your knee. Now, a reminder, if you're joining us for the first time, please check out our earlier episodes and please help us grow by sharing us with your favorite ESG professional. Yes. Today, we are asking all of you to get out your dirty laundry because we're talking greenwashing, diversity washing, and rainbow washing today. Oh, (laughs) we're getting clean today. Getting clean. We're getting clean. Yeah, it's uh, some summer, spring cleaning, something like that. (laughs) Um, But all jokes aside, those are one of the many terms that we hear when we're discussing how a company washes, another terminology could be painting itself in a light that is a pro ESG topic, but they don't really have the credentials to back it up. So as you can probably imagine, greenwashing pertains to sustainability, diversity washing to DEI, rainbow washing to LGBTQ plus issues. You get the point. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And, you know, when we hear those terms that they're kind of unfortunately misleading the representation of companies that are looking for accolades from the market, from consumers for work that quite frankly, they're just not really doing, but they're promoting anyway. Yeah. And so if folks listen to episode seven, you know, we discussed uh, last week, the pitfalls of indicating your company cares about a topic, but it doesn't actually invest in. And it really has major repercussions for everything from brand loyalty to employee retention and generally the overall success of your business. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I've been working in, especially with diversity content for a long time and now getting into sustainability content. And, you know, you always see those stories pop up and you're like, oh no, why did they say that? Or the smaller one when you eye roll of like, really? Oh, so, you know, I often think with, especially with like Pride Month, where the rainbows go up and then the rainbows come down after right. June, you know, like it just seems kind of not fully thought of. Yeah, exactly. So you always see the fudging of the message and here is why. So you brought this to my attention, a January 23 paper 
from the business programs at Chicago Booth and Stanford found that companies that engaged in diversity washing received better ratings from ESG rating firms and were often financed from ESG-focused funds, even though these companies were more likely to incur discrimination violations and pay larger fines for these actions. And so it seems like, wow, you could kind of get away with it for a little while. But what the authors say, though, is that they caution companies to get a handle on the level of misrepresentation in this area because a failure to adequately address deficiencies in DE&I has real effects on firms, including costly ESG audits initiated by activist shareholders, increased scrutiny from regulators, and bad publicity that can negatively affect customer loyalty, not to mention the social and economic loss for ESG investors. I think that kind of sums it up right there. Yeah, I was impressed to find this study because I think we've seen a lot of kind of anecdotal evidence and some of those we'll talk about today of companies doing this. But the fact that it's now being studied as a phenomenon in the business world is really interesting to me because, as we know, a lot of folks need data and need kind of peer-reviewed studies to take some of these topics seriously. Yes, And for me, you know, it was definitely a good reminder that just because a company has good ESG ratings and maybe has strong mentions of diversity within the reports doesn't really mean they're walking the walking the talk. And, you know, I think we're talking a lot in this series about, you know, how to do ESG comms right. And if you look sometimes at the surface level, it can appear that way. But often that's someone who's seen the value of talking that way without actually investing in the programs. And I think that is such a shame, quite frankly. And we'll we'll definitely link to the show notes, link to the article in the show notes in case people want to take a look. But, you know, I think it really gets back to this idea that not all ESG comms are created equal. And because the topic is very hot right now, companies might take advantage to spin their own narrative. Oh, for sure. I mean, back in the day, do you remember when British Petroleum said BP actually stood for Beyond Petroleum? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, So their um, greenwashing ads are actually being brought to court in the UK by a group called Client Earth, which is saying that they're New global keep advancing and possibilities everywhere ad campaigns have misled the public by focusing on BP's low carbon energy products when actually more than 96% of their annual spend is on oil and gas. Does this remind you of an ad campaign we talked about last week? Yes, Ryanair. Yes. And when you think about the incredible impact that oil and gas companies have on the climate crisis, it's really it's really quite crazy to me because any degree of advertising that says otherwise seems quite frankly preposterous. Yeah. And yet, you know, in a strange turn of events that we were just looking at recently, it was being reported that Shell is now actively turning away from greenwashing, yeah. which you're like, "Oh, great." But then <laughs> the second part of the headline was Oh, no, no, they're just brazenly talking about what they've always been doing, which is drilling. Right. The quote was that, you know, oil and gas giant Shell has walked back the greenwashing image that has worked so hard to foster over the last few years. And it's now going back to talking about openly drilling the planet for profit. And the reason that they said they were doing this is that Shell's leadership announced that they were shifting back to oil production to appease investors and that they were doubling down on this new strategy also because of the European energy crisis. 
followed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And so without falling down a literal oil well, there's just a lot of greenwashing that's happening in this space. I think we know that even though there had been a lot of discussion about the green perspectives of these organizations, in the end, they were not investing a lot of money in alternative fuels and alternative energies. And now it seems that Strangely, they're becoming more honest with us when it seems more I profitable. I would rather and, they just actually do the work towards improving their business to be more right. sustainable. I mean, I, that's or just what we're just picking political, yeah. you know, situations yeah. to be like, oh, well, it's, it's because of the European energy crisis. That's why. That's why we that's have to keep doing That's what why we're we continuing to do our bit. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, so then there's this other nuanced take on it where greenwashing becomes you know, ways we encourage you to take on the burden of being environmentally sound or helping underserved communities. Great. Yes, we should all be reducing recycling, using less, driving less. Especially as women go up the ladder, we should always put our hand down and bring up others right behind us. That is for sure. But by insisting that, you know, this is all about you, you, Katie, make a difference Instead of saying there is any sort of work for the systemic, for the enterprise to do, just puts all this work on the, it's shifting the burden over to the individual. And you see this a lot in diversity speak. There was a famous book, uh, Lean In, that talked a lot about, you know, how women can take up more room at the table, how women can make these changes and how women, you know, it's all on me as the woman to say what I need. But it's very hard to stand up against an institution either you're working for or a society you're living in when you're not getting the support back. It's a lot of onus to put on the individual. And um, there's a famous woman in the sphere, Sally Krawcheck. She runs a, an investment company called Elevate. And years ago, she, they interviewed her and she was saying, we're just making women busier. That's all we're doing with all this like... Right. How to you know be courageous at work? How to take up more space? We're just putting all this work on women, and that's a different version of it. So they get to claim the sustainability message, or they get to claim the diversity message, but they do it by ride you know riding on the shoulders of the individual. Does that make sense? Totally. And when you think about individuals and how they're sometimes manipulated to tell these stories. I'm reminded of the latest kerfuffle at the fast fashion brand Shein. So folks might've seen this in the news, but I think it's another example, quite frankly, of diversity washing, greenwashing, and they paid influencers to come visit their factories and kind of reimagine their brand. Yeah. And I'd first heard about these groups because the clothes are so cheap that people have these TikTok haul videos. Oh, of like really? Yeah, they have like they buy like hundreds of articles of clothing from For like Shein 50 bucks. and they yeah. spend like yeah, like like forty bucks or something. And you know, just the <laughs> just the term fast fashion, you're like, okay, there's probably not a strong foundation in sustainability there. Yeah. But then, I think what was so surprising for everyone who had been aware of this group was to then see that they brought a bunch of creators out to their factory to kind of share all the good things they were doing, a kind of reimagining campaign, if you would, yeah, if you will, because they're about to IPO. 
Ah, well, and, and, you know, and here's the thing, you're not just bringing individuals in this case, you're bringing audiences with them, right? Right. I mean, that was one of the work we were doing at Meta was to try to work authentically with creators in the climate space because they are so influential and they're very authentic and they're trying to tell real stories. And it was, you know, how can we help them do the work they're already doing? You know, like, cause, we're, cause there's no value in hitting them over the head and saying, this is our message because it'll <laughs> only backfire. And these folks actually did say their message and it backfired because immediately they got all got called out. I, I feel for these influencers because I do think I'm going to make a a sweet kiss to journalism school where you spend a lot of time studying about how to be ethical and talking about these questions. And certainly there can be a lot of thumb sucking about, you know, what is, what does the law say? What is moral? What is ethical and the like, but you spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. If I'm paid to go on a trip to go look at, you know, this is really tempting, right? To go look at this stuff. And I don't know if these poor creators have a background in thinking about all the questions that come with them, which is probably why they were picked. They did not pick reporters from the New York Times. No, they did not. And they did not even pick creators that have a background in sustainability or human rights. And so clearly they were targeting more kind of fashion creators, but I don't know. I don't think yeah. you have to be a sustainability expert to know that a $2 t-shirt is definitely not yeah, being that's made a good point. <laughs> in a factory where people are getting paid a living wage yeah. and there's likely some nasty chemicals in the mix. Yep. But I do think this gets back to our discussion we had before, which is around what partners you bring into the space. And yep. obviously the audiences are key, but now not only has Sheehan gotten a ton of really bad press because of this stunt that they very clearly pulled, but yep. now all those creators' reputations have also yeah, been spelled. And so I think a lot of times we look to young authors and young creators as ways to, you know, make brands hip and cool. But yep. it's helpful when they have enough expertise to actually be critical about who those partners yep. are. And they also need coaching. They're also coming up to speed. And I think this is a perfect example of kind of the worst of both worlds. Well, you always say you know, it's about doing the homework. What is the work you're actually doing? What can you do to talk about it? What are the values of your company? And this just smacks of trying to leapfrog over all that work. Right. And just like, get all the good stuff without doing any of the homework. Completely, completely. So yeah, we've talked about airline industry. We've talked about oil and gas. We've talked about fashion. I do not want to go on another big rant about big oil, but just, you know, I could. Go ahead. But I think this piece around personal responsibility being like a form of greenwashing is one that's really interesting to me. Growing up the last couple of decades, right? Like you always hear about recycling and the importance of individuals, consumer doing your part. But, uh, and there's a lot of data actually shows that the average American thinks the most important thing they can do is recycle. What a wonderful branding message. You know, they've done exactly. so much. It yeah. is. It's all branding. It's all misleading information by to consumers, making them take on the personal responsibility to help the planet. And it's not having the actual companies who are at the beginning of the product supply chain, the beginning Do of the product of the work. design right. doing it. And 
NPR did a really interesting study of kind of basically since the 1990s that they showed that Exxon, Chevron, Dow, DuPont, and their lobbying and trade organizations in Washington just have been churning out campaigns about the importance of plastics recycling, even though there's quite a few problems with just the basic mechanics of that, you know? Yeah. Not all used plastics can be turned into new things, and you have the process of picking it and sorting it out and melting it down is expensive. And then there's also like only a couple of cycles that you can do that because plastic degrades each time. Right. And then on the other hand, you know, it's really cheap, new plastic. New plastic is cheap. It's easy to use and kind of create, and it's made from oil and gas. And so it's almost always less expensive and of better quality just to start fresh. So there's really kind of broken incentive structures there. And yet, you know, these problems have existed for decades. And in all that time, with all that marketing, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. Amazing. It's a really unfortunate example, I think, of trying to do good or appear mm-hmm. to be good on the part of these large companies, but actually the financial incentives are to not recycle and reuse. There's also yeah. chemical challenges to getting there. And then all the while you have people who really have good intentions and think they're really trying to help out by recycle and even composting and within Oh, don't the tell realm- me composting isn't helping. I compost. <laughs> no, it, composting is good, but also like 3% of like city metropolitan areas in the U.S. even have composting. So it's just not it's even- It's coming to New York next year. It's going to be required. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah. I mean, it's required in San Francisco too. And like food waste is a major issue. Like if you are a compost advocate, please don't come for us. <laughs> but I just think that it gets back to this idea of And this comes back to the marketing and the greenwashing of... That me doing my banana peels is going to solve the problem. Yeah, you recycling that bottle that that you purchased very cheaply and very conveniently, and now it's your job to do the right thing, rather than those companies thinking holistically about like, oh, okay, waste is a huge part of our broader climate footprint. How can we reduce that earlier in the design process or come up with alternative materials that maybe could degrade and not aren't? made from plastics, you know, and that's going to take a bunch more investment, a bunch more time and money. And it's a big part of the reason those companies haven't done it. But I'm always wary when like an an act of consumer effort is akin to a sustainability message or a diversity message, because those people are going to be the least informed. And they're uh, now that have all this like responsibility guilt put on them. Well, and then you get to do the, you know, we love the earth during Earth Week. Right, and you're like, like, wait, how much plastic is in your your production cycle? Any company? Just wondering. Completely. Well, so my favorite is, and you see it bubbling up the change that methane gas, you know, it has always been called natural gas. Oh, right. And that, and you see, a, especially since you know, you and I probably read an awful lot of like the first level, the first line of defense on environmental reporting. And then, you know, it bubbles up into the mainstream and you can see all of these reporters changing from, we will not be calling it natural gas anymore. I mean, it's a, it's Mm -hmm. a, and I even thought to myself, I mean, my, um, my mother worked for the East Ohio, East Ohio gas company when I was a kid and that was natural gas. And like I was brought up working, you know, with a parent at the natural gas company. 
and to think, oh, wait, it's it's not natural. It's methane gas and we're pumping it, you know, so like and, even yeah, it's if, contributing to climate change and you're Nothing forever having to learn new things. Assumptions are broken. And then I, I am sadly mistaken and have to learn something new. So, <laughs> well, and the other piece about natural gas as well, as I'm sure many folks listening are aware of, there's also the production facilities like fracking and everything to get yeah. it, which impacts water and impacts air pollution of these communities, which are often, you know, underserved communities of color that are just have to have this stuff in the backyard because they don't have the political will or to uh, push it away power rather, or like accessibility to say otherwise. And so, you know, we haven't talked a lot about climate justice or environmental justice, but so many of these issues and kind of like what gets steamrolled over with some of this language, what gets, you know, any sort of power against it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which I think, once again, if we're thinking about this from like a comms lens, there's a huge opportunity there to not only be talking about this in a authentic and truthful way, but also when you're thinking about partners, like where are the communities that you're operating? How can you be partnering yes. with them to identify ways that you can help support them and the host of you know social impact and environmental issues that they're experiencing and therefore really build that strong tie so that if there is a, some bad press or something, you have some folks in the local community and the place that that know you're trying to do the right thing and can speak on behalf of you, which can often sound a lot stronger than you speaking about you yourself. You saying it yourself, exactly. Yeah. Well, we're talking a lot about talking about this, you know, like <laughs> we're hanging the flag and, and yes. you know, and doing the hashtags. Let's switch gears to green hushing. Oh, Yes. So yes. uh, this is very interesting to me. I think you were the one that actually brought this to me when I first started on meta sustainability. It's, it's like I, this was a whole new concept, and now I see it everywhere, or don't yeah. see it. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, not seeing it, the absence of it. So yeah, this term green hushing, which I think you could probably apply, you know, to any of the ESG topics that we're discussing today, is really an interesting backlash to all of the politicization of ESG that we've discussed earlier and folks are probably seeing in the news. And so when the term green hushing is used, it refers basically to a company's choice not to disclose its sustainability goals or progress. And there's fear about, you know, serious lawsuits that have been filed for greenwashing accusations over the past few years. And some companies have been boycotted. And so when we think about greenwashing, it's as the opposite of green hushing and that it's really become a widely used term to describe, as we've noted, any misleading marketing promotion about an organization. So you have the two sides of the coin, right? You have organizations that are trying to do the right thing, trying yep. to speak about it. And then you have folks who, who are not doing that and they're getting attacked and folks are saying, you know, we're scared of saying the wrong thing. And yep. so I guess we're just not going to say anything at all. And, you know, I think it's similar to trends of doing more, but saying less. And so, I, yeah, I'd love to hear yep. how you're seeing this around, Jen, too. Well, a, a million years ago, when I was doing the best companies for multicultural women, my um, lovely boss and mentor, Carol Evans, who started that initiative, it was always the smallest list. We'd only have like 25 winners. And she would always say, because companies were afraid to win, because they were never doing enough for women of color, mm. you know, oh, as employees. And so 
to even be the, but she pushed it and she was committed to us doing it. We would have a great event when, and oh, it was the best event because instead of having like all just chief executives, you would have the actual women executives of all over the the organization come and network. And it, it was a wonderful event, but they were afraid because if you said, you know, here are the top five companies for multicultural women you know, they're not doing enough. I mean, you know, right. it's, it's that fear of being called out because, you know, are their targets br- uh, far enough out? Are their efforts to reach those targets far enough out? And then there's reality versus ambition and that whole fear that we would have companies say, oh, no, I'm not applying to that. Oh, no, no, no. And I think you see the same thing in sustainability because you always know there is someone who's going to say, wait, you're only doing that. So, you know, the fear, the fear of winning or the fear of being proud of some target and then finding out it's not enough or knowing it's not enough, but you're trying that. I think that fear keeps a lot of companies, keeps their light under a bushel. So, Mm -hmm. and to that end, I am a firm believer that companies have real force to make change. I think, especially when you're trying to push a federal mandate for anything. And I worked a long time to try to get FMLA, the unpaid leave for only people in companies with 50 employees or more to get a federal paid mandate. It still isn't here. We're still the only major country that doesn't have a federal mandate for paid parental leave. This stuff takes eons in this country to get done. So where can you get it done? If Walmart gives paid maternity leave, then you have a million people impacted. So where can we do it? And so we want to hold companies accountable, but to come attacking them, you know, like you can discourage them to make change and to tell these stories. Because I will tell you that companies are competitive. You know, if one company makes a challenge or makes a goal and a target, other companies follow suit. So I think we need to encourage companies to do these things and not attack them. Uh, though it is really easy. It is easy when you invite a bunch of fashion creators to your factories and hide stuff. That one I'll give you. But let's encourage all these companies to put big sustainability goals out there and then push them to do even more. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's my rant for today. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. I think, you know, it's understandable that companies are struggling to figure this out. And, you know, one thing that maybe we should reiterate is you're not alone. This topic is relatively new as far as the business world goes. And so there's quite a few organizations and, you know, companies out there that are still figuring out how to tell their story authentically. And, but there's very compelling reasons why you should still tell your story. And as we've said before, if you do not tell your story, someone else will. Exactly. And so not saying something is also a form of communications. And so that's definitely something that worries me about green hushing. And I hope that this won't continue. Very well said. And so I think, uh, you know, hopefully we've given you all something to talk about, something to think about. Just get out there and Keep pushing those ESG stories forward because you are doing the work and we are we are proud of you, dear listener. So on that note, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this episode. Stay tuned next week. What are we talking about next week, Katie? Next week, we're doing an AMA. We're answering your ESG comms questions. 
from listeners. So we will uh, hand the mic over to you, so to speak, and pick out some questions that we got and maybe cover some, some new topics or new shades of topics that we've already discussed. So looking forward to that and stay tuned for our episode next week. And until then, keep engaging. Thank you for joining us on Engaging ESG. Have a question for us to consider or a strategy you'd like us to cover? Email us today at engagingesg at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Engaging ESG today. It helps us grow. And even better, be sure to share the podcast with your favorite sustainability, diversity, or social impact colleague. And until next time, keep engaging. Keep engaging.